everybody, and welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast that is now one year and a few weeks old. This is a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between, and we are here to talk about how legal and political issues affect you, to take everything out of that amorphous world and really bring it down to concrete terms, both between me and my co-host Joe Armstrong and a rotating cast of fantastic guests. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today what we're going to do is look back a little bit on what we've done over the last year, give you some highlights, a year in review, and look forward a little bit. Hello, Jessica. Happy to be here for Season 3, Episode 1. And listeners, we're happy that each and every one of you are along with us for this ride. It has been a hell of a year. As Jessica said, we're going to look back and look forward as well. We've all learned a lot together in that last year of Passing Judgment. We're going to get the crystal ball out and try to figure out what to expect in the next year to come. So let's jump in here with the big things that happened in the last year, the biggest arguably things that happened. The pandemic, of course, a global scale there, and the United States presidential election. So, Jessica, in some ways, I remain amazed that that election went off as smoothly as it did, given that it took place during a pandemic. When we started out this whole thing several years ago, 29 Democratic hopefuls declared their candidacy at the beginning of those primaries, and that was the largest number since 1972. A number of primaries and caucuses were postponed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as everyone figured out how it was going to have an effect on having lots of people in a place like a polling station, the DNC itself, the Democratic National Convention, was postponed about a month. It was supposed to take place in July of last year. It was bumped to August and took place in a somewhat virtual fashion. Now, remember, going back into that Wayback Machine, Jessica, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were strong in the polls early on in the primary season. Bernie actually won the popular vote in Iowa. He also won the New Hampshire primary and the Nevada caucus early on. And along the way, we all learned how to pronounce Buttigieg. Now, he's the young mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who ended up winning the Iowa caucus and then came in second in New Hampshire. He made him the very first openly gay presidential candidate to win a state in a presidential primary in the United States. Also remember that Bernie Sanders won California. That was 225 delegates, but it was not enough. Biden made a comeback in the South Carolina primary not too long thereafter and won 10 out of every 15 contests on Super Tuesday. Bernie Sanders would withdraw from the race on April the 8th. Now, if you were to ask me going back several years, Joe Biden was always the 800-pound gorilla in the room, so to speak. He has a lifetime of public service. He had a high level of political visibility and eight years as Barack Obama's vice president. Now, let's see. We talked about Biden being the gorilla in the room. Now, Biden pledged along the way that he would announce a woman as his running mate. He pledged to do so. And Kamala Harris, the California senator, joined the ticket. She herself was a presidential candidate at one point, uh, joined the ticket on August the 11th. Now, let's talk about how it progressed from there. We all watched this play out like a kind of a typical but also atypical primary season. And let's fast forward a little bit to the debates which took place last fall between incumbent Donald Trump and Joe Biden once he became the Democratic nominee. There were a lot of debates before that in the primary season, as there usually are for the opposition party. But that first debate between Biden and Trump, that would be September 29th of last year, that was in Cleveland, 
seemed to set a new low for presidential debates. Trump and Biden repeatedly talked over one another, and moderator Chris Wallace completely lost control of the event. And through the lines of questioning, when the right-wing group the Proud Boys came up, Trump famously said, quote, Proud Boys stand back and stand by, and that will come to pass in our conversation here in a few minutes. And at another point, after enduring a verbal barrage from Donald Trump, Joe Biden said, Will you shut up, man? And uh, I don't want to say it was a comic line, because I've never seen a debate like that in my entire life. The second debate was canceled after Trump contracted the coronavirus and he insisted on debating in person, so they canceled that one. The third scheduled debate took place on October the 22nd. It went off without the verbal fireworks of the first debate. Now, Jessica, tying this all together, given all that voters had seen in the prior four years, do you think that either of those debates changed anyone's mind? You know, Joe, I think the most remarkable thing is probably not. So when we talked about this episode and you said, I want to talk about the debates, which I think you're exactly right. You can't talk about the election without talking about the debates. Um, I was thinking back to the Democratic debates that I actually went to in person. They were held at LMU. I'm a professor at Loyola Law School, which is part of Loyola Marymount University. And it was December 19th. Uh, 2019, and we were just sitting shoulder to shoulder. I mean, we were packed in that gymnasium. So one of the things I remember is just how closely we all were indoors, obviously no mask, just trying to squeeze, you know, can we squeeze one more person in here? Because it does tell us such a story of how quickly things change. Think about December 19th to March 13th. Now, With respect to that first debate, it really, as I said, it pains me to say, but I think so many people have made up their minds about so many things. And for me, Joe, this is one of the themes of the last year is trying to find a way that we can move people, trying to find a way that on both sides we can say, okay, here's an issue. Try not to have a preconceived conclusion Or even if you do, let me add some new facts. I mean, if the virus has shown us anything, it's that new facts should change our perception of things. And so that debate, I mean, for me, I don't think it's going to come as a huge shock for anybody listening to this podcast. Neither one of us are a fan of President, uh, former President Trump. And that had very, very little to do with policy positions. It had everything to do with our respect for the rule of law. And... Um, and a number of other issues. And I just was watching that thinking, how can anybody support the, at that time, current president? Because he was such a, just a horrible bully. He wasn't saying anything of substance. And I think there were a lot of people who were watching her saying, wow, he looks really strong. Thank goodness he's saying that he's an advocate for us. And, um, So, no, I don't know that it changed any minds. Now, Joe, of course, for elections, what we think about is, does it change anybody's mind or does it get anybody to go to the polls who otherwise wouldn't or stay home who otherwise wouldn't? And I think the answer is probably no. So should we talk a little bit more, move on from the debates, talk a little bit more about how the election was run? 
Yeah, let's do that, Jessica. In the midst of that pandemic, the actual election itself, the way the votes were tallied, looked a lot different than it does in other years. There were a very, very large number of mail-in ballots, more than ever before, and that caused all manner of problems in terms of moving ballot boxes, in terms of Donald Trump fighting and undermining the entire concept of mail-in ballots, even though lots of people used mail-in ballots to vote for him as well. So it was an election season fraught with a lot of peril. The pandemic was raging during that whole process. And that takes us up to the actual election itself on November 3rd of last year. Trump claimed victory that night. And as you and I talked about on this very show, and we were far from alone, we all thought that we would not know the actual winner of that election on election night. And that came to pass, even though Trump himself claimed victory. It was a few days. I remember talking to you multiple times during that. We probably made some episodes during that time between Tuesday and that Saturday, November the 7th. And that's when it was kind of decided because ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, the Associated Press, CNN and Fox all called the election for Joe Biden. And that was a day that yours truly had some scotch for breakfast. On that morning, I remember waking up to the sound of just yelling kind of in the neighborhood. And I immediately jumped on my phone and learned what had come to pass and went outside and let out a little bit of a war whoop myself. Again, and as funny as it sounds, we, you say this a lot on the show, that's kind of a nonpartisan statement, regardless of how I feel about the man and his policies. It was just a very, very volatile time in American politics. And I was glad that it was going to be over. But it was far from over in terms of what happened between then and January 20th of this year. As we all know, Trump did not concede until two months later. That was on January 7th, the day after the insurrection at the Capitol. We'll talk about that in a minute. And even when he did concede, he did it in a pre-taped video. He didn't speak live to the American people. As far as the numbers, Joe Biden ended up winning 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. Biden won the popular vote, 81,286,924 votes to Trump's 74,216,154 votes. But as I said, Jessica, things went anything but smoothly from there. How much of that kind of thing was predicted? And did things turn out as we expected to or we thought they might when we were talking about this on our episodes that year? Uh, remarkably, I think a lot of things did actually come to pass. And we did it you know, a couple of election nightmares episodes. I felt like in the fall, I was on a virtual speaking tour called Election Nightmares. I had this PowerPoint that I made and um, I just kept adding to it. You know, I had a post-it note next to my laptop for a really long period of time and it basically had five bullet points. It said, prematurely declare victory which was a problem because when we knew that based on those mail-in ballots, that it could look like on election night that Republicans did better than they actually did because the Democratic votes, the mail-in ballots, we thought that Democrats would vote more mail-in and Republicans would vote more in person, in part because of all of the lies that former President Trump was propagating about the mail-in ballot process, even though he voted by mail. Um, that we were going to have something, you know, Joe, we said this so many times, a, a blue shift. It'll look good for Republicans on election night. And then as time goes on, it will look better for Democrats. But if President Trump says, look at the numbers, we won. And if they shift, it shows voter fraud. That we knew that was going to be a problem because the numbers probably would shift and it wouldn't show fraud. It would show validly counted votes. So Joe, you know, the first thing I had was prematurely declare victory. 
Then I had this bullet point that said, continue lies about voting fraud. Um, third bullet point, in keeping with that, file frivolous lawsuits, which we'll come back to in a minute. Four, refuse to go. I mean, we really had a question, which I still can't believe we were having this conversation, about whether or not the military was going to have to forcibly remove the former president of the United States from the Oval Office. Um, and then, of course, uh, the last one, I had a I just wrote violence, question mark. And Joe, I remember, I think I texted you January 6th, and I was starting to get calls that said, you know, basically hop on Zoom, can you start commenting for TV? And I just said, turn on your TV. I think you were walking Edie, your dog. Um, and Joe, do you want to take it from there a little bit about that day and what you observed? Yeah, the first thing I'll say, Jessica, you and I spent a lot of time talking about things that should normally be just matters of course, perfunctory things that took place between the actual election and Inauguration Day, when there's the Safe Harbor Day, there's other days when certain mechanical processes of our government move forward. And in a normal year, they were just things that happened. They certainly weren't news-making events, but boy, did that change in this last year, every single one of them seem to be contested by the outgoing Trump administration. But yeah, talking about that actual insurrection that day, January 6th, that fateful day, I was nervous that morning. You know, uh, people who pay attention, you and I, we'd been talking about it for a long time, as I'd said. So I was pretty, pretty worked up about it. But I figured I better take the dog for a walk now because the dog's going to go bananas if I don't do it now. While I was out on that walk, I, I, I remember it being a phone call. Maybe it was a text, Jessica. I don't honestly recall. But I remember thinking, and you know, when I get back, I'm going to have to check the news because it was about the time that the election was supposed to be certified in Congress. And you said something like, hey, you better get home and turn on your TV. But man, I went home and it was on all the networks. And when it's on the networks like that, it's a big, big deal. So yeah, I was indeed walking my dog. I ran home and turned it on and I was glued to the television in a way that I hadn't been since September 11th, 2001. I had feelings of dread going into that. I hoped that it wouldn't turn violent. And we all know what happened. People lost their lives that day. And I think maybe one thing I want to say before I move on is that I was saddened but not surprised with what happened that day. I was hoping a lot of the things, those nightmare episodes we were talking about, I was hoping they weren't going to come true. And when blood gets shed, it's a, it's a tragedy on any level. So... Uh, you know, the violence, it was it was manifested most visibly, like I said, during that insurrection on January 6th. It should have been a procedural vote, but then that Trump-inspired mob sacked the Capitol building and succeeded in stopping. And this is, I think, the most key point of all. That mob succeeded in stopping or at least delaying the congressional certification of Joe Biden's electoral win. So they succeeded to a point of what they set out to do. As Trump, you know, when he fired up that crowd, he said, you know, march down to the Capitol and make your voices heard. And boy, they certainly did. And now here we are six months later, Jessica, Republicans are still downplaying the significance of that event at the Capitol. That big lie that we've been talking about for so long that started on election night last year, it's pervasive. And to this very day, although Trump himself remains banned from social media, and that, that ban is going to last for another about year and a half at a minimum, Trump is still trying to sell that big lie at his ongoing rallies. So, Jessica, we talked about Trump staying in power. We talked about the military. We talked about all those nightmare scenarios. How close do you think we were to Trump forcibly staying in power? Well, pretty close. And it's interesting in you talking through all that. It reminds me 
we've spun out a lot of the legal issues that have come from the insurrection. There are two members of Congress who have filed suits. We've talked about those suits. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump, has filed suits against the social media companies. We've talked about those suits. And, you know, you asked me how close were we. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, we really should not talk about this like a peaceful transfer of power. There was an insurrection in the Capitol. It wasn't ultimately successful, but there was not peace on that day. There was violence. So it reminds us again that our grand experiment in self-representation, in having a republic, that none of this should be taken for granted, that it's not a done deal. And in fact, one of the things that we did in the wake of the insurrection, we pulled the lever on a constitutional mechanism. We had a second impeachment. That is not something, Joe, that I had on the post-it note that I've, you know, I kept on my laptop for all of those months. And uh, the impeachment, of course, uh, former President Trump was the first president in our nation's history to be impeached twice. We know that he um, was not convicted by the Senate. And that probably brings us to talking about, even though there's, there's so much more we could say about the impeachment, it probably brings us to talking about some of that post-election litigation, because that also has to do with the big lie. Yeah, Jessica, let's go back to one of those bullet points on your post-it notes near your computer, uh, and that's post-election litigation, because we got a little bit of an update on those lawsuits in this past week, I think. We did. So I remember, Joe, when we were talking about this, they are post-election lawsuits. And I got the question a lot, well, you teach election law. Are you going to teach these cases in your class? And the answer is no, because there was no legal there there. There was just no mechanism for President Trump winning those suits. They were based on a big lie. And I said, these cases, if they're taught at all, will be in professional responsibility classes and ethical lawyering classes. Now, Joe, you can play back the tape from a year of passing judgment. I'm not always right on my predictions, but that one I do have to say, I was right that what we've seen lately in terms of the post-election litigation is that we had a big sanctions hearing against Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and others who filed these frivolous lawsuits. And I listened to a good deal of the sanctions hearing that came out of the district court in Michigan just recently, just a few days ago. And it was rather extraordinary. You heard the judge say basically over and over, what was your evidence here? You filed this declaration, you filed this affidavit. What is this based on? And I suspect that we will see that there will be sanctions against those who either were official members of President Trump's legal team, he later kind of disavowed them, or those who were supporters of President Trump and filed lawsuits. You know, obviously, Joe, going into the midterms, one of the things I worry about is that this is the beginning of a trend, that this isn't an aberration. And I think we've talked about this so many times, which is how much of what happened in the last four years is, again, a pattern. It's where our country is going and how much of it is a one-off aberration and we can try and right the ship. One thing that makes me really anxious is that, you know, you talked about the insurrection. We've talked about the post-election litigation. 
the majority of Republicans have really stayed with the former president and have, in my view, continued to propagate these lies. The idea that you don't need an investigation into January 16th, it just strains common sense. And I know this sounds partisan, and I'm going to say this, I'm sure not for the last time, Joe, but notice what we're not saying. We're not saying we disagree with Republicans when it comes to tax policy or policy dealing with the environment or criminal justice or immigration or healthcare or name any policy issue. What we're saying is some matters really are about truth versus lies. And that's to me one of the most disappointing things. And, you know, to listeners, what we really have to do is just remain active and alert and hold our politicians uh, on both sides of the aisle accountable. So, Joe, that was a long way of, I guess I got a little more out than I thought I needed to. Uh, That was cathartic for me, but that was the update on the post-election litigation, which is, I really think it's moving into the ethical lawyering kind of sanctions realm. All right, Jessica, you talked about some lawyers there. Let's move on to one of our favorite topics on this show. The Supreme Court of the United States, affectionately referred to as SCOTUS for those of us in the know. We talked about Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood. Let's talk about some other lawyerly things. So just a year ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still with us. And I remember thinking, good Lord, please, ladies, stick around just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. That didn't come to pass. But that ties into this, the way we got into this, is that uh, Mitch McConnell, at that time the Senate Majority Leader, uh, when uh, Antonin Scalia died, uh, that was February 13th of 2016, just about an hour after Scalia's death, McConnell announced that he would undermine Obama's authority and not confirm a Supreme Court appointment until after the 2016 election. That's kind of a precedent-setting thing there. Merrick Garland was appointed by Obama but not confirmed. Today, fast forward to the Joe Biden administration. He is Biden's attorney general. Now back to Ginsburg. She died on September the 18th, Jessica. I remember hearing the news. You were the first person that I messaged right away and said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? But one of the things that we knew we were going to do is record an episode, which we did. So you can go back and you can hear it in our voices how sad we were about that. Now, Trump appointed Amy Coney Barrett to fill her seat, and Congress approved her appointment on the uh, 26th of October. So that was a matter of weeks, not months, kind of flying in the face of McConnell's little tactics he did back there when Scalia died. So instead of a matter of months, it was a matter of weeks. And that took place during an election, not before an election. So when all was said and done, when the dust was, was had settled, Gorsuch got Scalia's seat, Brett Kavanaugh got Kennedy's seat, and Amy Coney Barrett got Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And all those shifts, Jessica, shifted the power on the court dramatically. So given that power realignment, and uh, now that we're a few weeks past the end of that most recent Supreme Court term, now that we can look back at it in the rearview mirror, what is your sense of how things went as far as the decisions in this term in the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, as you know, I love talking about the Supreme Court because it's so consequential. And I hope that it is one of those areas where passing judgment is value added, where we can take these sometimes really complicated cases and say, okay, what does it mean to you in your daily life? Why should we care about this case? So having said that, I'm going to wax hopefully semi-poetic about a couple of things when it comes to Supreme Court this term. One, I, I really do think that this is a conservative six to three court. I mean, let's remember who's in the middle of the court. It's Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Chief Justice John Roberts, 
who people have heard me say this, is nobody's moderate, is now to the left of the center of this court. That's an extraordinary statement. Now, look, when it comes to the Supreme Court, the late Justice Brennan used to say the most important thing on this court is to be able to count to five, because without five, you can't do anything. And with five, you can do everything. Basically, you need five out of the nine votes. So this is our first almost full term with a six to three majority. Uh, As you mentioned, Justice Barrett joined the court in the fall uh, when voting had already started right before election day. Uh, Where are we on the court? Again, I think all indications are that it's Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is the center of the court. I believe he was in the majority 97% of the time. What this means is that conservatives on the court don't need the chief justice. They don't need John Roberts in order to get five members, in order to count to five, to make really big consequential decisions. It used to be, I thought, that Chief Justice John Roberts would still kind of pull the court back a little bit. Obviously, he's a conservative jurist and he knows where he wants the court to end up. But I thought there were places and spaces where he would either join with liberals or he would say, let's not take this case, or he would say, let's make a more narrow decision. And Joe, I think we'll go through some of the highlights of the term, but you still do see his fingerprints on the cases and how they were decided. And I think in part, that's because the reporting is that Justice Kavanaugh really looks up to Chief Justice John Roberts. And I think, therefore, he's exerting his authority, at least in that way. Now, some statistics about this court term. Um, 29 of the cases of the 67 cases that were decided this term were either nine to zero or eight to zero before uh, Justice Barrett uh, was on the bench. Um, 16 cases were six to three or five to three and eight cases were five to four. So there are a lot of issues where, you know, the court maybe is interpreting uh, the bankruptcy code and it's not this big, you know, it wouldn't kind of make the passing judgment podcast that we would talk about it. And it's not that big division. Uh, But if you, Look at some of the bigger cases that I think we'll, you know, we'll go through. Um, if you're a conservative, if you are a, if, if you view um, issues in a legally conservative way, this is going to be your court for quite a while. Always interesting, Jessica. Thank you for your insight into that. And for those statistics, it's interesting to me to see how they voted and who voted for what and what those numbers were. So now that we've talked about those personalities and the balance of power on the court, let's talk about the greatest hits from this last term. What are the bullet points here, Jessica, the key cases and how they went? All right, let's do, uh, I promise everybody, we're not going to go through every case that we talked about. Let's just do the highlights. I think everybody's favorite case, this the blanking cheerleader, the swearing cheerleader. This was a big First Amendment case. Uh, there was a, at that point, minor named Brandy Levy. She tried out for the cheerleading squad. She didn't make the varsity team. She, uh, during her off-campus time, not during school hours, posted a snap. And she basically said, F cheer, F school, F everything. She was punished for that, suspended from the uh, squad for a year. And uh, she sued. She and her parents sued. And they said that that violates my First Amendment rights. 
uh, the court in a decision by Justice Breyer said, actually, you're right. So that the, sorry, three, two, one. So what the court concluded is that public school administrators can punish students for their speech, but they need a really, really good reason for doing that. And I'll refer listeners back to the episode where we spent more time on this case. But what Justice Breyer concluded is, look, you didn't have a good enough reason here. The next case, a big First Amendment case uh, dealing with a different part of the First Amendment, the freedom of religion and the free exercise clause. This was the so-called gay foster parents case, where in the city of Philadelphia, there's an anti-discrimination law. And the law says, if you work for the city or want to be a city contractor, you can't discriminate on the basis of LGBTQ status. There was a religious organization, a Catholic organization that worked with the city to help place foster children with families, and they would not place foster children with same-sex couples. Uh, They sued and said, we don't want to have to choose between either being a city contractor or going against our mission and placing kids with same-sex couples, with same-sex foster parents. And what the court said unanimously is you know what, religious agency, you're right. And I think this is a case where we do see Chief Justice John Roberts in the background, because I think liberals weren't maybe thrilled with this decision, and neither were conservatives. And conservatives, I think, wanted to go further and overturn an old case, which they believe makes it too easy to infringe on religious rights. I think liberals thought this case probably went too far. But In my mind, again, my opinion, this case is a real compromise where they basically said, okay, we're going to make this decision. Nobody's going to be particularly happy, but we won't go further than this. Uh, Another case dealing with the First Amendment, Joe, this one was out of California, and this dealt with a California disclosure policy where the attorney general said to major donors, to nonprofits, to charities, we'd like to see more information from you. We already know that you file some information with the IRS, but we'd like some information about who your major donors are. Uh, The court struck down this policy, saying that California doesn't have a good enough reason. But the really important part of what the court did, I think, is that they made it more difficult for states and the federal government to prove that you need disclosure laws, and maybe even more difficult to show that you need contribution limits. And so the big thing from this case is what I view as a change in the standard of review for um, disclosure cases. And this could, Joe, bring us back eventually to kind of a pre-Watergate era where there just aren't limits on money in politics. Uh, To keep going briefly, of course, one of the really big cases was the Affordable Care Act case. I mean, Joe, you and I talked about this a lot. The case um, really dealt with the individual mandate and then potentially with whether or not if the court decided to strike down the individual mandate, if the entire law would be found unconstitutional. I Here's an example of a bad prediction I made. I said, I think the court's going to strike down the individual mandate for some reasons that we spent a lot of time talking about, basically that it was previously upheld as a tax and therefore it was valid under Congress's taxation authority. But when Congress zeroed out that tax, that it no longer looked like a tax and therefore Congress no longer had the power to enact it. 
I was wrong. Instead, the court ruled on standing. And here again, I think we see Chief Justice John Roberts, where the court basically kind of steps back and says, yeah, we're not even touching the merits of this one. And then probably the last case that um, we'll talk about is the voting rights case, that big Arizona voting rights case. The court upheld two Arizona voting laws that I view as uh, at least somewhat restrictive, making it more difficult for certain people to vote in Arizona. But the big part of that case is Justice Alito's opinion, a six to three opinion, where in my view, he made it really difficult for challengers of restrictive voting laws to be successful under what's left of the Voting Rights Act. And as we talked about, and as we'll talk about in a minute, I mean, one of the big areas where we need legislation is the Voting Rights Act. And it's also health care. I mean, we talked about uh, the Affordable Care Act case. Congress, uh, it's a great time to act when it comes to health care. And we talked about a Voting Rights Act case. Really important to shore up our fundamental right to vote. Um, but I think we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, we should probably spend a little more time on the Supreme Court. What do you think? Yeah, let's do that. One last asterisk before we move this, turn this boat around. I just want to talk just very, very briefly because it ties into my life just personally. The NCAA versus Alston case, which revolved around compensation for college athletes. I just had a conversation with my father this morning. College football season is almost upon us, which for him is like Christmas and Easter and every other big holiday you can possibly think of rolled up into one. My father lives and dies for college football. So those rules changed with that. The uh, court ruled in favor of college athletes, essentially. They're not getting paid outright, but it does change those rules. So let's turn this boat around, like I said, Jessica. We've got an upcoming Supreme Court term that starts on October 4th, which seems like it's a long way away, but it really isn't, Jessica. What's on the docket, literally and figuratively speaking? So we already know about a couple of really big cases, uh, one dealing with abortion rights that could overturn uh, Roe versus Wade and Casey, the two cases that say that there is a constitutional right to obtain access to abortion, at least pre-viability, a really big gun rights case, a big gun control case, and some more First Amendment cases. And we know that the court will continue adding cases and there could even be activity over the summer with the court's so-called shadow docket. So lots to talk about now and moving forward uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court. All right, Jessica. And the other purview of our show is politics. So let's look forward to uh, what the issues are that are facing us these days. We know what the balance and power of uh, Washington, D.C. looks like until those midterms, barring something unforeseen. We know there are always unforeseen things out there. And let's not forget, let's talk about Georgia just for just a brief second here. We need to remember that the balance of power in the Senate hung in the balance until a Georgia special election that was on January 5th, the day before that insurrection at the Capitol. So, Jessica, what are these big challenges politically before the midterms? We already mentioned a couple of the big areas where I think people are looking for whether or not there will be movement, health care, immigration, voting rights. Uh, there was just a decision by a federal judge that we'll get into in another episode where the judge said, stop accepting new applications uh, to be part of the DACA program. And that could put pressure on members of Congress to pass immigration reform. 
you know, Joe, we've talked about this. One of the big issues is I think a lot of voters feel like, okay, there's a Democrat in the White House. Democrats control the House. Democrats, by a very, very the thinnest of majorities, control the Senate because it's divided 50-50 and the vice president is the tie-breaking vote. I think a lot of people are saying, well, why haven't we seen those big campaign promises? Why haven't we seen any movement on, and we can add gun control to the mix? And the answer really is one word. It's the filibuster. So because we have the filibuster, other than for a lot of budgetary issues, it basically takes 60 votes to move any piece of legislation. And we have not found compromise on those big and pressing issues. Again, healthcare, gun control, immigration, voting rights, criminal justice. I mean, we could keep adding to the list. And one of the big questions is, you know, should Democrats try and get rid of the filibuster? And the answer is, it's kind of an academic question because they don't have the votes to get rid of it. Uh, I used to say, well, if Democrats get rid of it, then, you know, what power will Democrats have when they are in the minority? And I think the answer is probably um, that doesn't matter because if Democrats do get into the minority, then I think Republicans will get rid of the filibuster before lunch. Um, if, you know, if the past is prologue, if history is any indication. So, Joe, I mean, this is one of the big things to continue to look for. Will there be any movement on the filibuster? Because that is the threshold question that will answer whether or not there'll be any movement on those big topics that we keep talking about and will continue to talk about because they really do deeply affect everybody's daily lives. That they do. And then with that sentence, Jessica, I think we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the goals. When we set out to do this podcast in June of last year, when you first called me up and said, hey, let's make a podcast. And I was happy to hear those words because I've been bugging you about making a podcast about these topics for a long time because you're really, really good at it. And I remain proud and happy to be doing this podcast with you. Those midterms you just talked about, that's November 8th of 2022. So uh, that's essentially tomorrow in terms of geologic time. There's a lot of political news to look forward to. We've, we've covered a ton of different topics in this first year of Passing Judgment. Overarching themes for you, Jessica. What, uh, you know, if we had a light motif, which one emerged for you, you think? I think the through line, sadly, is disinformation. If we think about, you know, we've talked about the election, the big lie. We've talked about the pandemic. We're living through what I fear is another true surge now. I fear that we are really at the beginning of another surge because of this disinformation about the vaccine and therefore vaccine hesitancy. If you think about the even the election, if you think about even some of the Supreme Court cases and what they're predicated on, for me, the biggest issue is disinformation and trying to get to a place where we're not screaming at each other, but we are saying, here are the facts. Let's all at least read from the same script. I mean, this sounds like so hokey and elderly and a little get off my lawn or I don't know what, but it really used to be, okay, we all concur that there is gravity. We all know that two plus two is four. Now let's argue about the policy and let the best person win. It feels to me increasingly like we're not even there. We don't, you know, we're, we're questioning the two plus two. We're questioning the gravity part of this. And so for me, it's, it's a troubling note 
to end on, but I think it's part of the reason why we want to continue to have these conversations is the disinformation, the active lying to people, actively trying to confuse people is the through line of so many of the things that we have talked about this year. And for my part, Jessica, I concur with you on your devotion to combating disinformation. I do believe, as you do, that it should be the best ideas and not the most money or the most successful disinformation campaign that wins elections and sets policy. I know you think it's funny. I always love to bring up what we call the Bannon Doctrine, which is flooding the zone with a word that is a poop, essentially, flooding the zone with poop, rendering the truth unknowable so you then you can come in and swoop in and de- define what the new truth might be. It's very Orwellian and it's very disturbing to me. So I'm proud to do these episodes with you. And I really do believe that it's really crucial that people pay attention to what's going on in our society. These issues matter. And it is my goal and our goal, I think, on this podcast to help people relate to these issues and understand why it affects them and why it might affect them. Most people don't have a law or political science degree, and it's easy to become disenfranchised, especially in a society where some political parties work to disenfranchise voters to make sure people go out and or, or stay home. They don't go out and vote. But just like you said at some point earlier in this podcast, Jessica, representative democracy is not a given. This is a hard-fought, hard-won, and people have given their lives to defend over the last 245 years. So as you like to open up every episode, Jessica, politics and law and a lot of things in between. And I sincerely hope that we are able to continue to bring people this podcast long into the future. I hope so, too. And with that, we have opened season three of Passing Judgment, season three, year two. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Here is to continuing these conversations with you. Right. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and elsewhere at Indepday, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. Jessica, thank you for reaching out to call me. And as I like to say all the time, thank you to each and every one of our listeners for taking this ride with us. We are proud to be on this train. We will talk to you with more issues in just a few days. Bye.